Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, from your gracious heart comes every good gift in life, the gift of life itself. You have given us this day, a day full of rain and sunshine, a day full of hail, a day full of all kinds of things that you give to take care of your earth. You have given yourself to us to take care of us. In fact, you have given us your word, your mind, your wisdom, your truth, your inspiration, your forgiveness, your healing, your renewal. You have given us all these things that we might continue to be nourished and strengthened in the way that you would have us to live and to grow and to love each other. So help us remember all of these deep and abiding truths about you now as we open your word, as we find it recorded in Genesis. We pray all that in the name of the author of all things, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Okie dokie. Um, I'll give you a warning right now. I have to walk out at about five till ten. So um, we'll see if I can contain myself, okay? <laughs> I keep hitting something. Let's see, let's take this off and see if that helps. Um, where are we in, in Genesis? Uh, we are coming uh, close to the end of the stories about Jacob. Uh, but last week we looked at how Jacob and all of his, uh, all of his sons, all of his children uh, have moved uh, into the area of Padan Aram and uh, started to settle there. Uh, and there's been a terrible incident uh, when Jacob's only daughter, Dinah, uh, is, is raped uh, by the local population and um, how the local folks uh, wanted to try to make amends and set up a, a kind of a, a pact, an economic and social pact to welcome and receive Jacob's extended family into their community um, and uh, share uh, in, in marriage and share in commerce and all kinds of things. But we also saw how Jacob's sons, uh, in some sense, overreacted. Uh, to an admittedly terrible thing, but overreacted to that and managed to find a way uh, to create a ruse uh, using their, their sacred uh, religious symbol of circumcision uh, and through that uh, to wipe out the men in the community where they had just come and to then plunder the villages and to take everything for themselves, which we learned uh, last week was, was a horrible, horrible misuse of one of the most meaningful uh, aspects of this new faith and faithfulness that Jacob's family uh, were learning in relationship to God. And that's where we left the story, that Jacob is sort of heartbroken. Uh, he understands, apparently, how, how terrible this breach is, this breach of faith on the part of his own family to take advantage of a bad situation and make it so very much worse and to use the sacred things of their faith in the midst of that process. So that's where the story has left us and that's where we pick it up uh, with chapter 35. So let's read chapter 35. You can rest assured we're not going to read chapter uh, 36. Um, and we'll, we'll see why for reasons later. So, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and settle there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then... 
Come, let us go up to Bethel, that I may make an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak that was near Shechem. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So it was called Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he was called Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Okay, let's stop there. We'll take those first 15 verses. So the context that we just talked about is a context in which Jacob and his entire family, his entire household, in some sense, have become defiled, polluted. That's the word they used for what had happened uh, to Dinah, but they themselves then defiled and polluted themselves. They put themselves in a place completely apart from God in all the events that had just transpired. And so some things need to happen to restore the relationship and to get things back on the right track between Jacob and his people and God. Does that make sense to you? So let's get in touch with that, that human aspect of what's going on here, right? I would guess that all of us at times have gotten sideways with God or sideways with other people. Has that ever happened to you? I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has, right? What happens when you get sideways with something? <laughs> Not in the right relationship with something. You need to do something to restore that relationship, right? How many of you, let's, let's go even a little deeper with this. How many of you have gotten sideways in a, in a deep relationship, maybe a romantic relationship with someone, and you've saved all their letters, and you've, that's, that's an old-fashioned version of communication where you write on paper with each other. You've saved all their letters. You've saved all their gifts and mementos and memorabilia of the first date and blah, 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 blah. And you have stacks and stacks and piles of stuff from this relationship, and then the relationship goes away. What do you do with all that stuff? You burn it. Ooh, yeah, there was no hesitation there. <laughs> exactly. All right. You burn the stuff. You don't burn the person, although who knows, right? Who knows? In a sense, that's exactly what's going on here in this conversation between God and Jacob and all the things that go on there. God says, make an altar, right? 
And what is an altar about? An altar is a place of sacrifice, a place of remembering God, signifying something important. Now, in the Presbyterian tradition, I have to tell you, we don't use altars per se. We, we know that the altar has been replaced by the communion table. Uh, but still, that idea of an altar as a sacred place that recognizes something sacred uh, is part of what's going on here. And that's not a bad thing. I would guess we all have maybe sacred places or sacred things, do we not? Do you have something, you know, a, a, a ring that your mother gave you a long time ago uh, or your first Bible from your church, right? Uh, or the, the, you know, the... the all the stocks from that company that your dad started that are now worth billions or maybe worth nothing. I don't know, who knows, right? So Jacob again makes an altar. And then what does Jacob say to the household? They do several things. Put away the foreign gods that are among you, right? Probably what happened as the sons of Jacob uh, pillaged and plundered they took the statues, the idols, the gods, which would be probably very precious objects, not just from a religious point of view, uh, but they perhaps would have been adorned uh, with gold or silver or other precious uh, jewels or stones, right? So it was not just about worshiping foreign gods, it was about taking something materially valuable, right? Purify yourself, take away these foreign gods, get rid of them. Give them back to God and give them, just get rid of them from your life for what they signify. And then change your clothes. Change your clothes, right? This goes all the way down to stripping off everything from the past and putting on something new. Change your clothes, right? Do all this so that I may make an altar to God. So Jacob takes everything, the foreign gods, the rings that were in their ears, Judaism originally was, was pretty, um, a, a fairly plain kind of, of, uh, of group of people, um, a culture. There was not so much emphasis on adorning the body with wealthy stuff uh, as there was in, in other cultures. Uh, and you have this sense they've taken all this, all this gold, all this silver, all this jewelry, all of that stuff we're going to bury under a tree. And it is, a, it is a cleansing process, right? How many of you have given up eating a certain kind of food permanently? You go to the refrigerator, you go to the pantry, and you throw it all away. Or better yet, you feed it to your husband or to your children, <laughs> right? Okay, and get, and get rid of it that way, right? That's the dynamic of what's going on around here, okay? And they continue, they continue moving on. Okay, so then Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies. We're going to have a lot of death. We're going to have a lot of death in the passages we're looking at today. What have we noticed about death when someone dies in Scripture? What does that mean to us? Remember? Someone dies and it's the end of a generation, but the family continues on. Remember, let's go back to that promise to Abraham. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And there's going to be generation after generation after generation. And even when someone dies, there is someone left to carry on. Uh, what was the name of that song? 
And when I'm dead, dead and gone, there'll be one child born to carry on, carry on. Do you remember that song from the 60s? Was that Blood, Sweat and Tears? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So then God comes to Jacob and, and, and says, hi, your name is Jacob. Well, Jacob knows his name is Jacob, right? We've already heard that in the wrestling at the Jabbok that God gives to Jacob a new name. And here we hear the story again, right? Here we hear the story again. Why? Is this a different story? Does it come from a, a different place? Or what's happening with this? As the way it is told here, Jacob needs to hear again what God has already said to him. If I've told you a million times, <laughs> Jacob... <laughs> That's the way I read this. Some scholars read this and say that there were, and this could very well be the case, that there were different traditions of stories that were passed down through the generations. And after the original event happened, those stories morphed and changed. And then at some point in time, people started writing those stories and they were slightly different. And then um, at some point, all those stories were put back together again. They were compiled and you have different versions of the same story. Maybe that's what's going on here. The way the story reads though, to me makes perfect sense. Jacob, I told you a while ago that you're a different person now. You're a new person. I've given you a new identity. And there's a lot that goes with that identity. Do you remember <laughs> what that was? I see a lot of human dynamics here. And so Jacob again hears that story that he's not just Jacob. He's not just the supplanter. He's not just the devious, conniving, scheming, striving, scratching, clawing, second born. He is the one who contends with God and contends with everyone and makes his place in the world. That's who Israel is. And so he sets up another, another pillar. Let's stop there for just a second. Are there any of these things that make sense to you or that don't make sense to you that we need to talk about a little bit? Any of these things that bubble up something inside you that we can chat about? Yes, ma'am. So as you said that before, God told Jacob that his name was Israel. Mm -hmm. Now he comes again. Mm -hmm. I see it as God telling Israel... Jacob, Israel, reminding him, but it's also a sense of saying, I forgive what the past, mm -hmm. the errors that you have made. Mm -hmm. I am still keeping my covenant with you. I still trust you to make the right decisions. Go, do as I say type thing. Yes, yes, yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah. I, I would agree with you completely. That's that. How that, remi that reminding Jacob of who he is is saying, God, God is saying, as far as I'm concerned, you still are that. You haven't lost that status, right? Uh, this is who you are. Did any of you have parents who, you know, when you're walking out the door to go to college or something, your parents say, remember who you are. Remember who we taught you to be? And when you're in a, in a difficult situation or a situation where there are lots of different paths to follow, remember who you are. Jacob is being reminded of who he is and still is by way of forgiveness. Yeah, very much so, very much so. There are a lot of scholars who um, connect this, this series of stories, putting away the idols, the rings, giving up all that, kind of being renewed. They connect that to baptism, right? 
to baptize. You know, baptism is partly about you, you are buried in the water. This is for Baptists, okay, Presbyterians, very stingy, just a few drops. Um, you're buried in the water, and then you're resurrected up out of the water. It's a new life that you're given. You are washed in the water, bathed and cleansed, everything is washed and put away, and you come back a washed new person. You take off old clothes, you put on new clothes. There, there's a long history of the tradition of the reaffirmation of baptismal vows. Uh, Presbyterians, most traditions believe in one baptism. You're baptized, you're baptized. But you can always reaffirm those vows. You can remember what they were, that you were washed and cleansed as a way of restoring that relationship. So, yes, that's very much a part of this, very much. Yes, over here. Um, I'm reading along and everything gels beautifully together, and all of a sudden... The nurse dies. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seemed like out of nowhere. What, yeah. I mean, why put that in? I mean, I understand about the deaths that are coming and everything, mm -hmm. but that just seems like it's out of left field. Mm -hmm. It does kind of, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with you. It, it's not a major point in the story, but it is a piece of the story, and you can do a couple of things with that. Uh, one of the things you can do with that is say, well, this is just totally random, it's meaningless. Or you can take it to be a shred of evidence about the, the historicity or the, the truth of the text itself. Obviously, I think obviously, there were lots more stories that were told. There was lots more history that was told. And over time, a lot of that was compressed down into shorter and shorter versions. And, um, and but, but some of the detail would have been left in there, right? Think about it, when you recall an event or when your family sits down to talk about something that happened X years ago, you'll have a lot of different ways of telling that story and people will remember different scraps of information about what went on uh, that are not necessarily pertinent to the story itself, right? You know, you can ask somebody, well, well tell me about, you know, um, uh, what it was like, um, let's, let's pick an example. Uh, what was it like, uh, you know, the, uh, the first day you shipped off uh, to go to war, okay? Uh, and, and someone will sit down and tell you that story and say, well, I was with such and such unit, and we were being assigned so and so, and they'll, they'll give you the big um, truths about what was going on, here's what was going on. Um, and I remember uh, that my uniform was too tight that day. Or I remember that before we left, uh, you know, we had hamburger steak and Cokes and fries. Something that's really insignificant in the big story, but it's a scrap of information. That's kind of how I look at these kinds of passages. Okay, that seems sort of incidental there, but to somebody it was important, or it was something that was never edited out. That's kind of how I look at that. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. Anything else in this section that's, that's kind of interesting? This is fascinating stuff. It's also important that you think about what, what this is saying to me. Connect with, oh, by the way, um, I, I got distracted when I was writing the notes for today. Uh, and one of you, one of you, only one of you, you get a gold star, Julie. Only one of you wrote back to us and said, where are the questions at the end of the study, right? Right? See? It was actually my way of testing. No, I, I just completely forgot. So, but one of the questions that you can ask from out of this is, 
Number one, how do you know? I can think of several questions right now. How do you know when you need to go through this cleansing, purifying, reestablishment of the relationship with God? How do you know when that's happening or when it needs to happen? Another question would be, when you sense that that needs to happen, what do you do? Okay, I suspect you may not have a, a, a closet somewhere that's full of foreign idols that you can go bury under a tree. But do you have something, maybe physical or something emotional, that needs to be taken out and dealt with and put away, right? And then do you do that for yourself only individually, personally? Or is that something that communities need to do sometimes? Communities can go awry, can go astray, the wrong direction. Sometimes for for decades, even hundreds of years, and all of a sudden people realize, wait a minute, this isn't what we thought we were supposed to be doing. This isn't the way we thought we were going. So those are some good questions to ask and to think about for yourselves out of this section. Okay, let's keep on going. Starting with verse 16 in chapter 35. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel was in childbirth, and she had hard labor. When she was in her hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. As her soul was departing, for she died, she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, meaning Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had resided as aliens. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. He died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Okay. They continued on the journey. They're restored, refreshed, forgiven, renewed in relationship with God, and they continue on, right? And Rachel dies in giving birth to the last of the 12 sons, to Benjamin. That's important because we have the 12 tribes of Israel, which will eventually go into uh, Egypt and reside there for several hundred years, starting off as 
most favored people because they're part of Joseph's family, eventually becoming enslaved by the Egyptians, then being delivered through the leadership of Moses, then wandering around in the wilderness for a long time, and then coming in back into the Holy Land across the Jordan River uh, with uh, the leadership of Joshua and then living for 300 years in this Holy Land as the 12 tribes confederated, if you will, kind of in a loose association with each other, but then finally brought together initially by Saul, but finally brought together as one nation, the original 12 tribes, the 12 families by King David. That's important, that 12 is important. 12 is a number that signifies completion and wholeness. This is the whole family. Everybody in the family traces their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then one of the 12 sons of Jacob. I'm from this branch of the family. Eventually, just to connect some more dots for you, eventually, Jesus comes along and picks how many disciples? Twelve. Twelve. As the institution of a new Israel. That's how the church looked at that. So what you read in the New Testament about the selection of the twelve disciples, and what you read in the New Testament about the 12 disciples beginning a restored and renewed people of God, which is how the church sees itself. It all goes back to the 12 sons of Jacob. Okay, so Rachel has Benjamin, and then now it's significant when Rachel dies, right? Rachel is kind of, out of all the different women that Jacob had in his life, Rachel was the one, okay? So Rachel dies, right? And then... Jacob, uh, excuse me, and then Isaac dies. So that, that next generation is gone. The next generation is gone. You have an interesting little comment, and this, this one uh, tells us a little bit about uh, the culture of the day. Verse 22, while Israel, while the community was living in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Okay, and Israel, Jacob heard about that. Okay. In, in many ancient societies, when the father of the, when the patriarch of the clan uh, was beginning, beginning to get too old to run everything, the younger men would start to battle for position and for power. Okay, this is kind of like the story of the Lion King almost. <laughs> um, and one of the ways that the younger men asserted their newfound power was to go take their father's wives from him, right? That's what's being told. I don't want to hear from you. That's, that's what, does she talk to you every once in a while just from out of the blue? It's the weirdest thing. So that's what that verse is about. But the most important thing, the most important thing here is that uh, we have Rachel dying in childbirth, but she's giving birth to the last of the 12 tribes. Uh, and then uh, Isaac dies, right? He is gathered to, uh, to his family. And then notice this, Esau and Jacob come together to bury their father. We've had a lot of stories about all the battles, all the separation, the division between these two brothers, but they've kind of patched things up. We've already talked about that. 
And now when it's time to bury dad, they come together. So this is the end, if you will, of the next generation. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, and Isaac dies, and now the second generation is gone. And the third generation and the fourth generation are ready to come into the scene. We've heard a lot about the third generation, Jacob, and now we're going to start hearing even more about the fourth generation. Okay, so let me stop there for a second. Is there anything exciting or interesting, uh, strange, weird, confusing that comes out of this? Yes, Marilyn. But when um, Isaac was giving the blessings to Jacob and uh, um, Esau, Esau. Mm -hmm. uh, wasn't he close to death at that point? Yes, yes. So this is this could be another story. <laughs> this is a different way of remembering when it was that Isaac died. And maybe, maybe all these stories that we've heard didn't take nearly as long. Or maybe we have a, a confusion in the text itself, right? That, that this is a piece of text, a piece of a story that came from one of the, one of the, other, one of the 12 tribes, not the original uh, story that we read about earlier, and it was inserted into this story. Right, So this gets into a, a confusing problem about the history of the writing of the Bible itself. Okay, Most scholars believe that uh, it was not until uh, the time that Israel started to become settled under King David that all of these different stories about the patriarchs were uh, were compiled and written down. Many scholars believe that these stories were not compiled and written down until after the Babylonian exile. Okay, the time of David is about the year 1000. The Babylonian exile is, is in the early 500s, 587. The end of the exile was in about uh, 510, 515. Many scholars believe it was hundreds of years before all of these materials were compiled together into one story. And that's one of the reasons that you have things being interjected in different and weird places. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Uh, it makes sense to me. It doesn't change the fundamental nature of the story. A lot of people take that evidence of lots of different things being pulled together as evidence that the Bible is unreliable or untrue. Um, I take it only as evidence that it's a very old book that comes from a lot of different uh, historical perspectives uh, and took a long time to get written down. But the fundamental truths that are described in the story, right, about the passing of the generations, the presence of God, the two brothers who were at war with each other coming together at last, all of those things are still there. That's how we look at that. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Yes. When Jesus chose his 12 disciples, mm -hmm. did they come from the 12 tribes of Israel? Was that also part of his choosing? No, I've, I've never heard that described in any way. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, good question to ask, though. Yeah, Laura's going to research that and, and tell you about it next week. <laughs> but I've never, I've never run across that. Yeah, yeah, very good question. Yes? Uh, the other thing that has nothing to do with either this, except for the fact that um, every generation, the brothers, mm -hmm. whether you're talking about Isaac and um, I've got a 
lost all the names all of a sudden. Uh, Abraham's son, Ishmael. Right. And his son, Isaac. Mm-hmm. Parted many, many years before Abraham died. But they had to re- remain friends because they were both there at his death. Yes. Yes. And that same thing happens again in the next generation. Yes. So somehow or another, all of these children of God, mm-hmm. whether they're uh, Muslims, what have you, all come back to the relationship of their original father, Abraham. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And one of the things, that, that's part of the story of, of chapter 36 here. Uh, but that's one of the things that, that a lot of modern scholars, modern religious leaders are, are trying to remind people about in, the, in, the, in all the divisions between Judaism and Christianity and Islam, is that all three of these religions, if you will, all three of these histories trace back to Father Abraham right? The people of Abraham. And we see how over time, human nature being what it is, there's there's strife, conflict, war, division, things separate, things come back together. But throughout the story, we we hear about how the the people of of Ishmael, right? Right? Abraham and and, uh, Hagar's in a sense, illegitimate son, okay? In a sense, I don't want to push that too far. Uh, and, and, and now we have, you know, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, who's supposed to be the supreme, who has, you know, taken that position, uh, uh, unrighteously so. Uh, and, and, and then uh, you've got Esau's family. Chapter 36, by the way, uh, we, we'll just bring that into the conversation now. Uh, it begins, these are the descendants of Esau. And the rest of the chapter is a long genealogy full of names that would drive everybody crazy. That's fine. But that's all it is, is the genealogy of Esau. And we have to say, why do we have the Esau's genealogy? We trace, we meaning the Jews and the Christians, trace our history to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph, one of the 12 sons, right? Not Esau's children, but Jacob's children. Why are Esau's children talked about here? Well, for the same reason uh, that that Ishmael's uh, sons and family are talked about, is that they are also from God. They are God's children, uh, and they are also cared for. They are also part of God's larger plan, at least to have the whole world populated. Uh, And even though they are not the family from which God plans to bless the whole world with some special knowledge, some special activity that Christians believe happens in Jesus, they still are part of God's family. And so there is that common tie right there. And you will find, um, and in the last seven years of going into the Middle East, uh, I've had more direct personal experience of what I had been taught theoretically for a long time. You will find uh, Jews, And of course, you will find Muslims who will either want to highlight the divisions between, let's say, Islam and the Judeo-Christian faith, or they will want to focus on the similarities and the common family history. And this is that common family history, which uh, I like the, the, the... the promotion of the the common history that we have and the common values that we share. We're not exactly alike, 
None of the three religions, if you will, are exactly alike. There are significant differences to talk about, but we do come from the same family. Uh, and, and that same family comes from ultimately the same God. <laughs> so um, there's a little bit of a disconnect that goes on in us individually, and I think corporately, when we talk about God is blessing us, but God is not blessing them. Well, in the original story, there is no them. All are children of God, period. So it, part of this depends on what you want to emphasize and highlight and where you want to go with it. And in my mind, we always take that back to Jesus. What did Jesus do with that? And Jesus never excluded someone who was not part of the original 12 tribes of Israel. He included Romans. He included Samaritans. He included lepers. He included everybody. And so that's where you've eventually got to go to Jesus. You didn't know you were going to get that long of a rant, did you? <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah, you know me by now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What else, Stan, we'll take just a couple more minutes. What else pops out of all of this for you? Yes, ma'am. I don't remember my baptism because I was a child. Mm-hmm. when I was baptized again in the River Jordan. Ah, yes. And it made a difference in my life. Yeah, you remember when you were, you were baptized as a child and then I was six weeks old. I don't remember it. I don't right. know, you, you were an infant, right? Um, that, a lot of people want to be re-baptized, so to speak. Um, and, and we don't have time to talk about the, the idea that baptism is only once. But the rebaptism business is remembering, right? And recovering for yourself. Um, and so there's, if, if we want to take a couple more questions out of this, uh, things to talk about, I would encourage you to think about the things in your history, your actual history, or your spiritual history, we could talk about it, that are part of who you are, part of how you grew up, um, that, uh, that could probably go two different directions. There's part of our spiritual history maybe that has done damage to us. Stuff that we have learned or stuff that we've gone through in the life of the church in relationship with God that was wrong, but also much that was right. And it's important to look at those things, right? Uh, some of us have, have grown up in spiritual communities that made us feel only guilty and ashamed and damned forever if we didn't follow X, Y, and Z rules. Uh, and we learned there's a different way to think about our faith, right? Or some of us perhaps grew up with extremely faithful, beautiful, wonderful parents and a church, and we went away from all of that. And now we need to come back to that. That's part of why all this stuff is written down, and part of the reason we go through it over and over and over again, continually, until you're done with this life, is to keep remembering all that stuff and dealing with all that stuff. So that's some more stuff you could talk about. Okay, I have an appointment with Destiny in just a few minutes. Um, maybe that's a little strong, but <laughs> anyhow, that's scary. Yeah, that part could be scary. <laughs> At any rate, let's have a word and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for being with us in this day through your word, through the fellowship and friendship of fellow believers, uh, through the inspiration of your spirit. Uh, help us continue to, uh, to learn and to grow and to take the lessons that you would teach us from those who lived so long ago, 
but who are just like us. We thank you for their stories and for their faithfulness, and we look forward one day to meeting them as we look forward to meeting each other now in further conversation. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, my children.